Hey everyone, welcome to episode 48 of The Green Life. Today's episode is with a recurring guest, Dr. Sabine Azen. Dr. Azen was here for episode 16 where we explored the microbiome and her findings in the relationship between bifidum bacteria and COVID. Today we're going to talk about the gut again, of course, but in relationship to our brain health. Of course, this conversation went into different directions and we'll talk about it in a minute. Before that, I want to say thank you, Namawell, for your J2 juicer, a machine which has been powering the green life with the best juices ever. If you want to try this machine, if you need a new juicer, I really recommend this one. By far the best on the market and you can get 10% off with my discount code in the show notes. Also, I have a beautiful retreat coming up here in May 2023 in Portugal and it is all inclusive and it's got an amazing array of experts joining me to give you the best wellness experience. So with this retreat is not just about yoga, it's not just about relaxing, but actually educating our guests into being healthy version of themselves, not just whilst they're here, but when they go home as well. So it's educational, it's very informative, and it's also a lot of fun. We have a lot of activities planned for you, lots of pampering, amazing food, and a little bit of exploration of the beautiful nature of Northern Portugal. So if you want to know more, go into the show notes as well and check out my link if you have any questions get in touch. We have also a beautiful 10% off for our listeners. So if you name, if you mention the green life, 10% off. Okay, back to the show. We're going to talk about brain and gut connection today. This is a very big topic. A lot of people are talking about it finally in the science community. And we really have an amazing episode for you. Now, Dr. Aizen and I talked a little bit about lifestyle and we see things in a very different way, which in a way was refreshing for me to have on the show because I don't want to create an echo chamber of my own uh, bias, and I want to have conversations that are a little bit different. We got into a little bit of a debate about one specific Instagram influencer, I could call him. So check out the episode, stay tuned, and let us know what you think. Okay, without further ado, let's go into this beautiful chat. Welcome, Dr. Azen. Hello, Dr. Azen. How are you today? Thank you for being back on the show. I'm so excited. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. You know, you're always welcome. So, well, it's been a while since our last chat, and I know you've been super busy traveling all over. Um, have you been doing more um, more research, more I'm studies? always I'm always juggling, uh, you know, 10 wheels at the same time. Yeah. So I'm <laughs> coordinating lectures, I'm coordinating research, I'm publishing articles, I'm fighting with the peer review. <laughs> you know, to get my papers published. So I'm always, and then I'm pu publishing or not publishing, but writing protocols for to submit to the FDA, amending those protocols, working with the FDA hand in hand to get these protocols better. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of things going on and a lot of work, you know, this year. So we're yeah. off to a busy start already. I bet. So before we get into the Topic du jour. I like to ask you about um, last time we talked about you. Obviously, we're working on the protocols for um, the the bifidus bacterium and its correlation to healing from viral infections such as COVID. And um, I wonder if anything changed from what you had found at the time, or is still going strong in that direction? Still going strong. In fact, every day I get patients who test their stools with us. 
at Progenobiome. And basically we are looking at the microbiome and now we know why they survive. So we're like, good, golden poop. Excellent. Keep doing what (laughs) you're doing. So I think that's the the key, right? So, I mean, myself, I've been on the pandemic the whole, the whole three years, you know, exposed to everyone. Um, You know, I I wore a mask at the beginning, but Mm -hmm. then I felt, what's the point of wearing a mask? I'm the guinea pig. I have access to a genetic sequencing lab at my disposal that I can see my microbiome on a daily or monthly basis if I want to. So I said, and I'm going to be, and we found, remember, we found COVID in the stools. You know, Mm -hmm. our first patient was like in March of 2020, we collected those stools. And then we discovered that COVID existed in stools of patients yeah. In 100% of patients that were symptomatic for COVID, but also in some asymptomatic, right? So we have access to that capability to look at the whole genome sequencing. So when I'm exposed to people and they're like, oh my God, you're not wearing a mask. I'm like, you know, I test my stools. If I have the whole genome of COVID, I'll do something about it. Maybe if my bifidobacteria is low, but you know, that's, that's the advantage that that's the gold, right? That's I've been on this front line. I chose to step in to help people, to help humanity. Um, and I risked my life essentially to see the data, right? So without that scientist that is playing with those microbes, you can't really know. You can't, you know, you have a lot of, you know, even when we look at the septic tanks, well, the septic tanks are great, but it's not clinical data, right? Mm. Because when you look at the septic tank, you're looking at a moment in time and it could be a dead virus that you're looking in between all those stools, right? Yeah. It doesn't really tell you if it's alive, if it's a problem. And, you know, and I, I have to say, because I, I talked to the scientists who did the studies on the septic initially, you know, that um, where they looked at the dorms, right? And they said, oh, we caught COVID in the dorms. And we stopped everyone. But the thing is, they should have just continued to do those stool studies to see if these kids would have just eradicated them on their own. Mm. And therefore, it goes through the septic. So so that's the story. That's very. That's a very good point, especially because then you don't have really the data of how people are reacting because you don't know whose tool that is, right? Right. So it's a good thing that we are moving forward with the, uh, you know, with the same kind of understanding of the bifidum bacterium and how healthy and important our gut health is. Because again, it comes, it goes very much overlooked when we talk about this with a lot of medical professionals, unless they are gastroenterologists who are actually into holistic health and they're looking at different aspects of the body. So I feel like where you're from, you are looking at the at the body from a holistic point of view. So you're starting to understand more and more these connections that sometimes get lost into these expertise, you know, different doctors for different body parts. Yes. And I, I think when you look at the expertise, the expertise is paid by a company to sell a product right? Mm. We all have to be tuned into that, right? Um, You know, it's very expensive to do these research. Nobody's going to do a research on vitamin C, for example, except Mm. me, because I wanted to see is vitamin C, what's vitamin C doing to the microbiome? You know, when I saw vitamin C increases the bifidobacteria in myself first, I said, let me see what it's doing to others. And then what I did is I actually called naturopaths, right? And said, hey, you guys are treating with vitamin C, Let's see, right? Yeah. Let's see, see vitamin C. <laughs> uh, anyways, so um, so when I saw that vitamin C increases the bifidobacteria, 
in like 24, 25 patients, 30 patients, I forgot what was the number, I realized, you know, wow, this this is a mechanism of action of why vitamin C is probably helping in COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And and I know I live in Malibu, right? I see my naturopaths taking care of my celebrity patients with the IV vitamin C infusion, with the vitamin C pills, with the the, the holistic approach, right? Which I think because of that, you know, now we're shining the light on the holistic, right? But the holistic is also working in the darkness, right? Because the holistic is just trying different herbs, but they don't necessarily know what it is doing in the microbiome. Hmm. And especially when we go into pills, right? Fabricated in a factory by men that is supposed to replace, you know, a vitamin C or supposed to replace uh, oregano or supposed to replace, you know, what's growing naturally with the microbes around. You have to be really, you know, conscientious and say, is that pale quality? Yeah. Is there really vitamin C in there? Is there arsenic in there? Is there, um, you know, products in the capsule that is killing the bifidobacteria? So it's so important to look at the microbiome. And that's the, that's the research I want to bring to the world, essentially. I want to, and I want to work with companies that are the naturopath companies and the medications, the pharmaceutical companies to say, look, we now have a validated, verified assay that has reproduced data to show that vitamin C increases the bifidobacteria. What's your product doing to the bifidobacteria? Is it killing the bifidobacteria short-term or is it killing the bifidobacteria long-term? So somebody called me and said, oh, I've been on so many antibiotics. Well, believe it or not, and I'm not going to say which ones, there are antibiotics that actually increase your bifidobacteria. Mm. And there are antivirals that increase your bifidobacteria. And there are other medications that increase your bifidobacteria. So knowing that knowledge helps us in fixing because now you all of a sudden have a marker of sensitive of, of um, a, a marker that tells us, you know, potentially this is what's altering or killing. We've seen from COVID. So remember, found COVID in the stools in humans, not septic, followed these samples of COVID in the stools and looked at these patients with the bifidobacteria. So we have a paper that's coming out that's going to show once and for all, was it the, did the strain matter? Or did your bifidobacteria level matter? Mm. I'm not going to spoil it, but that paper is coming out. Is it open source? It's going to be open source. By the way, all these studies are extremely expensive. I just published on ivermectin's effect on the microbiome. It got accepted after like three to four months. Um, You know, that was about a $7,000 to make it open source for everybody to read it. So please have everybody, you know, support the Microbiome Research Foundation because without the Microbiome Research Foundation, none of this would be possible. I'm fortunate. I have a lot of, you know, patients that are celebrities and millionaires that donate to this and helps me continue my research. But I can tell you the majority comes from Dr. Hazen's private funds. And, you know, I because yeah. I'm not going to wait for an NIH grant. I'm not going to wait for that company that wants to sell me a drug to put it to market to get paid, right? That's not, you know, and in fact, companies come to me, you know, probiotics company, especially because I'm talking all about bifidobacteria. 
And they're, well, you know, how do we assure ourselves that the results are going to be good? You can't. It's research. I'm yeah. going to call it like it is. If it fell, you probably want to do about 20 patients to see if it failed. So there was a there was a company um, that will remain nameless. And they were selling a, a product, a yogurt. And actually, we found out that there was no bifidobacteria <laughs> in that yogurt. Danone. <laughs> yeah, so, no, 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 no. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. Uh, no. No. And and actually that data is going to come on that as well. Um, so I'm publishing a paper that's, um, so there's a misc and, and I want to touch about that. Um, there's a misconception that if a product, a yogurt has a lot of sugar, it doesn't have bifidobacteria. You need mm. sugar to ferment. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you don't have sugar, you're probably not fermenting, right? Fermentation occurs with sugar, right? Mm. So that's that's something that people need to understand. Yes, sugar is bad for you if you're eating a case of donuts that are fried with sugar. But if you're eating like one or two donuts a day, you're actually helping fermenting. Not one or two. I'm not going to even say that. But if you eat a little bit of sugar, it helps your bifidobacteria, right? So, you know, when you look at a yogurt and it's too sweet or whatever, you have to kind of say, maybe it's helping the bifidobacteria grow, right? Can I ask something about that, though? The, the fermentation should happen at a certain temperature and is right. So when, when those are in the fridge, that's not, not really. Well, no, but, but remember you're refrigerating a product that's already been fermented, right? Yeah. To keep it lasting longer. Right. Yeah. But the generally. Process, yeah. When you look at eggs, right? Fresh eggs, fresh eggs from my chickens, I will put over the counter and they're good for like, you know, up to a month. Right. Mm -hmm. But by the time you, you know, if you want to have them last longer, you put them in the fridge. Obviously, yeah. that's why the whole process of refrigeration occurred. Yeah. You know, if you look at, you know, an egg that's in the refrigeration at a store, it's probably about three to four months old. You know, by mm. the time they go from the from the farm, get collected, sanitized, get put into a shelf, get put into the store distribution, you know, there's a lot of time that gets lapsed. So mm. you got to really wonder about all that. So that's why it's always best to buy fresh eggs from the farmer that you know, because you know, they're fresh eggs. Yeah. Um, but saying that yogurts, so this yogurt was actually didn't have any bifidobacteria. And this was like a very intelligent woman who didn't know because she trusted the factory that she was making the yogurt. The yogurt had a very good concept behind it. So what I did is actually I helped her, you know, formulate better her yogurt so there could be bifidobacteria in there. And I connected her with other people that could help her because I'm in the industry with people in the probiotics world. So without saying names, because I don't like to have competition and, you know, everybody does their own at reading. But I think I think eventually we're going to have, you know, to have a... Um, a report of which yogurt has what, um, you know, I think that's why I'd like to see personally the FDA spend or our government spend the money is in the foods that we're eating. So in mm -hmm. other words, you know, is there a bifidobacteria in my yogurt? You know, is there, was that, is there a quality? Because the paperwork, you know, we're too busy checking the paperwork and research and quality and I can tell you this from because I've had the FDA in my office and I've never had a 483. But then all of a sudden, when we did the clinical trial on ivermectin, we were so busy with the clinical trial, we forgot to submit a form to the IRB. So we got a 483, which is like a fine 
not a fine, but like a, a warning, you know, a warning, right? And the reality is, and I said to the FDI, I said, you guys are missing the boat. You're missing the fact that no one died on my ship. Mm. It's not about the paper that was forgotten to be sent to the IRB. Every consent was done on those patients. So regardless of the fact that I didn't get the form from the IRB, the consent was done. We were busy in the middle of a fire, I mean, a fire of COVID that, you know, we didn't check all the paperwork, you know, and, and technically, Typically, these IRBs, regulatory boards, are the ones that remind you like a month before, two months before, three months before. So that didn't happen. Everybody was busy. Everybody was, you know, crazy busy about dying, etc. So the point is that when you look at research, you shouldn't be looking at the paper. You shouldn't be looking at somebody recording the refrigeration of the yogurt. You should really take that yogurt, you know, just randomly and test it. Yeah. Same thing with the vaccine. There could have been a quality. Are we seeing all these problems because there was a quality problem in the vaccine? Maybe sporadically check a couple of batches before you, you know, vaccinate all of America, right? So yeah. I think there needs to be a little better quality, in my opinion, and probably independent of the government, independent of the companies. So I think that's, you know, that's become my role in a way. I think that's going to become my role because I call a spade a spade. And, you know, I I want to see the data. I want to see the data for me. When I looked at, you know, when I went to Whole Foods and I picked up 23 yogurts and out of the 23 yogurts, only three of them had bifidobacteria. Wow. There's a problem there, right? Yeah. And that paper's coming out. So I think we need to do better. We need to also educate the public. Right. Because the pub, the public cannot count on their doctor. They cannot count on the government. They cannot count. They can't even count on me or you telling them because we're not telling them the whole story. Right. Mm -hmm. Or the whole data. It's important that they they count on themselves. Right. To do their own research, to make their own informed consent, to empower themselves with knowledge, to pick up that book. And read it. You know, we we wrote a book at the beginning of the pandemic on the microbiome mm -hmm. because I was tired of people sugarcoating the microbiome. Mm -hmm. I'm like, listen, the microbiome is sh.t. Mm -hmm. So I called the book. Let's talk shit because, mm -hmm. you know, I wanted the people to understand it's all about your shit. Look at it. Understand it. Understand how reflux potentially occurs. Understand how neurological problems could potentially occur. Understand how Alzheimer's, who, by the way, during this pandemic, we realized is not an amyloid problem. Maybe a gut dysbiosis. You know, my paper, which was the first paper I published on fecal transplant helping a patient with um, Alzheimer's, and he remembered his daughter's date of birth. Um, that paper was the beginning for doctors and scientists to say, yes, it might be in the gut. And so this is also the problem and the criticism I have on the whole naturopath and holistic is if you don't write the data, if you're not doing the clinical trials, nobody's seeing it, right? It just happened that I am a Malibu physician and my patients challenged me with all sorts of things, right? So, you know, I'm the doctor that used to give prednisone to my patients, you know, for you had like laryngitis. I would say, oh, here, you're a singer. Let me get you on a, on a prednisone pack, right? Lo and behold, I discovered, you know, through the naturopaths that were treating the singers, 
that there's another way than killing the gut. You know, there's another way to improve their singing, to improve their their reflux, their voices. So it was it was kind of my it was serendipitous, and it was also divine intervention that I ended up in Malibu with all these naturopaths and and functional medicine doctors and and seeing the truth, right? Seeing what makes you know a celebrity so beautiful and so healthy, right? Because they have to perform. They're constantly under stress. They have to come out into the public. You know, it's not about the cream that that celebrity is selling. There's a whole world of naturopaths and functional healers that are helping these celebrities and psychologists and, you know, doctors. You know, there's a whole group that are all doing something to make sure that celebrity looks good when they're performing, looks good when they're you know, going from one movie to another. And I'll tell you, because I have some of my celebrity patients and I, I always say to them, listen, cut down your stress. You're doing too much. And and their answer is, this is not an option. It's not an option. Find me another option. So here we have to figure out something to give them so that they can continue to function at that high intensity to continue to look good, to continue to feel good, to be the face that of that character that they're portraying. So... Mm. That's interesting because you never hear about the aspects. It's always about, you know, the um, outside. So the creams and the, the diet, of course, but um, it's never, it's you never hear about the, the, the entire picture, right? And it's just like, why don't we give more credits to the, to the, the naturopathic doctors or the holistic Absolutely. doctors that are looking after them, right? Yeah. Like we don't pay them. We don't pay them money. That's why. <laughs> and by the way, if you look, if you go into those kitchens of these celebrities, you know it's all fresh vegetables. It's all you know on a on, you know it's a it's a cupboard you open. It's all fresh vegetables in different baskets and yeah. beautiful. So I mean, you know, this is a different level, right? So yeah. Well, you touched on today's episode actually by, by talking about the uh, the gut health and Alzheimer's. We are going to talk about this uh, the the gut and brain axis and how clearly that you mentioned that is a very strong relationship. We have been finding that more and more, but um, I think it's only the last ten years that people are really paying attention to it. Um, and I, I'd be interested in talking about um, Alzheimer's because I had to begin with, because I had um, I had a guest on Dr. Um, John McDougall, who um, came with the perspective that the issue with Alzheimer's is due to um, aluminum poisoning. Um, which I think can be, it's one of the things that affects it, but we never we didn't go into the gut. So I like your perspective on really what's going on with the brain uh, when we talk about Alzheimer's, and then of course your speciality talking about the gut relationship. If you take the history, so and this is why it's so important to be a clinical trial doctor, right? Because you're the doctor taking the clinical. So so many of those, you know, those. Uh, protocols that are coming out or papers that are coming out are coming out of labs of doctors that are PhD scientists, right? Whether it's animal studies, you know, lab or concept, you know, it's not really touching the patient. It's not really analyzing, taking the history. And, you know, in a world where we're trying to get into all artificial, you know, intelligence and organize all these histories into one big thing, we don't realize that First of all, the ability of a physician to record all this data in a computer, it's impossible. I cannot take a history from my patient 
and get to know my patient without sitting down and spending that one hour with them taking the history. Now, am I going to spend my one hour taking the history and finding all the information from my patient? Or am I going to take it dictating it? Okay. So I've always been dinged in the past for my documentation because I'm not the person that's going to be detailing everything you want to know and put a code for it for some robot to take extract from my history, the information. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so I'm not that person. I'm the person that's going to figure it out, write it on a piece of paper, old school, and basically say, look, you're, um, did you drink? You know, when you're writing on a computer and you have a computer between you and the patient, the patient's never going to tell you if he's drinking, you know, a, a bottle of vodka every night, right? You have to develop that relationship to ask the patient. So what did you do in the last month? Did you drink alcohol? How much alcohol? Are you drinking one, two, three? You know, I've had patients that came in with pancreatitis in the past, chronic pancreatitis, and they denied alcohol. And I said, are you sure? And I would always bring it back. And I would say, are you sure you're not drinking? And then they would basically, and then finally they they would come like after six months and say on the second, you know, episode about pancreatitis and say, I confess, you're right. I do drink. So, you know, that's an art of extracting the history, right? From the patient, because the patient's not going to volunteer his information. He's feeling awkward. He's embarrassed maybe that he's drinking so much, right? He doesn't want you looking, you know, bad on him, et cetera. So it's got to be a finesse in the history. So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, you know, so at the beginning of the history, I probably wrote no alcohol, right? But then it changed to alcohol six months later, right? So a computer is not going to figure that out, right? These these things. In, and in a world of artificial, these studies are coming out with artificial intelligence, taking them out, and then they're, they're, there's a delusion, right, on what healthcare should be. Healthcare is not that. It's not a robot picking up 96,000 histories from a computer that the doctor barely even had time to reply in there is the forensics. In that history is the answer, right? So when you look at a patient with Alzheimer's, it's important to take a very good history to find the clues, right? What were the clues? Did the patient have a car accident? Did the patient have a trauma? Did the patient suffer from someone dying? Did the patient take some antibiotics? Did the patient drink 10 cups of coffee? Did he drink 10, you know, a bottle of alcohol? What did he have a dental cleaning and then basically rummaged all these microbes in the in the mouth? Was there a bacteria in the mouth? Right. That was, you know, so or didn't he do a cleaning or does he brush his teeth? So many questions you have to ask the patient to be a detective and to say, yes, this is why this is happening. So when you become a detective, you find the answer, and especially in the microbiome space. Right. So when I, I was a detective, when I did, when I had a patient with C. diff, he was 87 years old. Nobody really, you know, they're like vancomycin, vancomycin, flagell, and nothing was really working. The poor guy was a golfer. He could barely remember his date of birth. Uh, You know, he could remember, he couldn't even remember his daughter. And he was a happy golfer before that, right? But then something changed. Somebody gave him that one antibiotic for his UTI. Somebody, you know, he ate something, whatever. And, you know, that something caused a dysbiosis. 
And the dysbiosis, which is an imbalance in the microbiome, started flaring up by showing C. diff. C. diff pops up because you have clearly a gut dysbiosis. Your microbiome is out of whack if you're having C. diff or if you've had C. diff, you have an imbalance. So C. diff is going to flourish in an environment where there's no microbes because you've killed the good microbes, right? Mm -hmm. So C. diff is going to start secreting its toxins. It's going to give the patient diarrhea. You keep giving it antibiotics. So you keep killing more of the microbes. You're never really rebuilding the microbes. And when you talk to people that have had C. diff and they do the naturopath and the natural way of like fermented food and sauerkraut, et cetera, they start feeling better, right? Mm -hmm. So what are we doing? We're giving them more good microbes. But it's but some people, even though you give them all those good microbes, it doesn't help. It's beyond because they've been so damaged. Mm -hmm. So this patient was my, my, uh, my detective work, right? So I knew the path. I, I said... Action leads to a reaction. So therefore, he got the first antibiotic, killed a whole bunch of anti uh, of bugs. Then they gave him more antibiotics, vancomycin, which killed more bugs. So now if you didn't achieve in killing completely C. diff, C. diff is going to keep flourishing, right? So that's why we're seeing people that have refractory to treatment, right? And then they come to us. So what do we do when we do fecal transplant? We take stools from a healthy donor and we implant it. It, via colonoscopy all the way to the cecum preferably and we change c diff because c diff is easy right it's you've got this bug it's lost its diversity you find a good microbiome you implant it bam patient's done healed right now when that patient had c diff and probably he had had c diff for a long time before you know even the alzheimer's it probably started with like c diff diarrhea diversity loss and then Alzheimer's set in, creeped up on him. Then you have to restore the microbiome, right? So because he had C. diff, we were able to do fecal transplant on this patient because nobody approves fecal transplant for anything else unless you have a protocol with the FDA. And I want to make that very clear because mm -hmm. people call me and they're like, how do you refloralize the gut, right? Because that's what I call fecal transplant, refloralization. But refloralization is not just taking stools and putting them in the colon. It's also changing your environment, mm -hmm. changing your foods, changing your house. Do you have mold in the house, right? Is that mold, even though I clean your gut, I give you a new microbiome, you clean the mold, you're going back to mold, you're going to keep getting bad stuff. Mm -hmm. Is your toothbrush that you're using, does it have an accumulation of microbes in there that you keep using, you know? What are you using to clean your teeth? You know, have you done a deep cleaning, you know? All these microbes accumulate, you swallow them, they go into your gut. It's an overaccumulation, right? Mm -hmm. So basically that's that's kind of was the detective work. So when I achieved improvement on this patient, I said it was it was great that I achieved improvement and I it gave me a hint that fecal transplant could possibly be used for Alzheimer's. But uh, from there, I needed to understand why. So I went to see Dr. Sidney Feingold, who wrote the book on anaerobic infections. And I said, Dr. Feingold, what am I seeing with Alzheimer's? And that was his passion, Alzheimer's. He had collected stools. He gave me a paper and he said, this is what I found in Alzheimer's. When you open your genetic sequencing lab, put it in a safe, 
and you'll understand, you'll find the same bugs and the problem with Alzheimer's. So I did. And then during the Woolsey fire, he passed away. And I got inherited, like his family called me and they're like, we want to give you all his books, his patents, his, you know, frames, everything. So I got all his work and I started rummaging through the patents and I saw Dr. Barodi's name <laughs> on it. And I said, wow. And I called Dr. And then Dr. Barodi and I connected and, you know, we started talking and he said he had met Dr. Feingold at an airport because he also was doing his own, you know, he was doing the fecal transplant portion on these patients. And I was really, um, you know, just figuring it out. Right. So, mm -hmm. so we were both detectives and that's how we, so, you know, forensics of the gut kind of told us the story and that's how, you know, you publish one paper and then others publish other papers and then they start seeing your path. And then the path changes from amyloid to all of a sudden we have to pay attention to the gut. So and, you know, from there, I wrote the book with Dr. Sheldon Jordan, you know, um, who is the top neurologist, in my opinion. We went, we speak at different meetings on the importance of the microbiome. We're writing the protocols for Parkinson's, MS, Alzheimer's. So again, reason to support the Microbiome Research Foundation, because none of these protocols can happen unless we have funds. Yeah. So, Mike, I was going to ask you if, um, well, what what part does the amyloid plaque though plays play in, in in Alzheimer's? Because now we're shifting the view a little bit to more gut uh, dysbiosis that can be re readjusted. But does that even effect have an effect on the plaque? And does the plaque have an effect on Alzheimer's? And what's the connection? And those are very good questions, and we don't have. The, and I'm I'm never going to put myself in a rabbit hole to say. There's a connection. There's not a connection. Mm. We don't know. So I always tell my patients, follow the data. The data is mm. coming. So we're writing the data we're seeing. But, you know, we're just tapping into the microbiome space right now. Mm. So there's no way to possibly, all I can tell you is give you hypothesis. Mm -hmm. My hypothesis is not a one thing. It's not just the gut, right? Yeah. I think my hypothesis is that it's either... In some people, the gut is primary. In some people, the connection between the gut and the brain. And in some people, it's the brain is primary, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we need to focus. And then in some people, it's the environment around there. Something is changing that, right? So, and then in some, it could be the mouth is the primary, right? So I think there is a cause in, in every different population and to just globalize or say it's the same for everybody, it's a mistake. That's mm -hmm. when you are selling a product. When you are, you know, only one side fits all, it's because you're selling that one size fit all, fits all, yeah. right? Yeah. So, it, you know, and we've certainly seen that with, you know, the shots and we've certainly seen that with all these drugs that they they show amazing results in clinical trials. Then they come in the clinical world and they bomb right? How many drugs have we seen that come strong? There, There's a huge hype on them and everybody believes, oh yeah, this is the new cure for this. And then they comes in clinical research, clinical trial, not clinical trial, but clinical practice and doctors use them and they're like, this is not working. You know, I did a clinical trial on C. diff one time and it was an expensive drug. And basically 
you know, I did the clinical trial. It looked good on paper. I mean, it wasn't, you know, enormously amazing. I mean, you know, it was in the 50s, 60s improvement. But when I used it in clinical practice, I was fail. The drug was failing constantly. So I'm, like, I'm not spending the money anymore. I mean, this is too, these drugs are too expensive. So that's when I switched to fecal transplant because as a physician, I have to look at, well, what what's giving me best for my money to like get the patient better so I don't have to see the patient again, right? Yeah. So yes, I can give them an expensive drug, but then if they come back with C. diff again, I spent money for nothing, right? And Absolutely. that money could have been used something else on something else. So, you know, if a product, if I if a procedure is giving me ninety two to ninety seven percent success. Well, you don't need to sell me anything else. That procedure is giving me 92 to 97%, you know, and it's not because I'm making money from that procedure because the majority of GI doctors, first of all, there's no code for fecal transplant. Mm-hmm. The There's a code for colonoscopy, but what are we getting for colonoscopy now as GI doctor? $158, you know, mm-hmm. that's it. So, you know, am I going to play with poop and implant it for $158? You know, the majority of doctors are taking those insurance plans and are getting those $158 and they're doing it for the patient. They're not doing it because they want to make that $158, right? Yeah. Does it cost more than that to do it, right? Of course. I mean, listen, there's some colonoscopies and that's why to me, you know, the whole insurance, it's, it's a disaster for doctors to stay practicing. And that's the reality nobody understands. You know, you're seeing these bills. You know, the bill, you know, for colonoscopy in the, in, at the time was in the thousands. Now we've dropped all the way to $158. Could you imagine the GI doctor that's, you know, accepting that plan and basically has to pay 13 employees to keep a certain level of practice going? So they have to see volume, but volume does not equate, you know, um, quality or time with the patient. And, and that doesn't equate, you know, helping the patient, in my opinion. So, you know, and, and remember, the, all these employees in a medical practice are costly, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, my day is like, you know, way, it, it's like $500 an hour just of employee, you know, I have writers, I have, but I'm in a different bracket. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my doctors, if you hire a secretary at $35 an hour, and you hire a bookkeeper at $65 an hour, well, right that right there, you're over $150. Most doctors practice at about a $250 overhead per hour. You know, that's expensive. So when you're making $158 on a colonoscopy and the colonoscopy is taking you an hour, you know, that's you're 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 you can't practice, you can't continue. Yeah. So the doctor becomes stressed. That stress gets pushed onto the staff, gets pushed onto the to the Patients. And I think those are the things we don't talk about, right? Everybody's scared of talking about that. But that's the reality that's affected healthcare. Yeah, I think it's because it's encompassing. um, It's all encompassing really for everyone, because ultimately, the, 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 the other side is a lot of people can't always afford even uh, medical care anymore. Uh, we are seeing a huge inflation. Food alone is 30% in the US oh, is even more. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, and salaries are not keeping up. So what suffers becomes the things that people don't necessarily deem essential, like health, which is crazy, right? Uh, because our health is. I, I'm well. always baffled. I'm always baffled, especially because I treat a population that has the money, 
right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm always baffled how, you know, I had a guy one time who had rectal carcinoma and he didn't have healthcare insurance, but he lived in a big mansion in Malibu. And it, it baffled me. So I coordinated his whole care. You know, I got him to find the radiation oncologist at a cheaper price and the surgeon and the oncologist, because it's very difficult when you don't have healthcare. Anyways, the whole thing was about, I think, 30, 40 grand to coordinate, you know, the resection of the cancer, the chemo. And really, I had to call every single one. Not everybody has the time to do that. He wouldn't pay it. So he ended up dying. He didn't want to lose his house. I'm like, really? Your house or your health? <laughs> I mean, you know, at the, you know, I think at the end of the day, you have to prioritize your health. Your health yeah. is everything. Without your health, you can't pay your house, right? Yeah. Without your health, you can't be there. So yeah. we put such an attention on money. And money comes to those who do the right thing is really my opinion, right? You save a life, money comes to you, right? You do the right thing. You help a person, your neighbor, somehow you're struggling, you know, you find answers, right? In that piece, right? I, I think we've valid, we've put so much emphasis on, you know, what, what shoes we wear, what, you know, what, uh, what car we drive, what wallet we carry. Materialism, and basically. The most important thing we should be focusing on is our health. What's in our gut? right? What's in our brain? How's our brain functioning, right? Yeah. Because let me tell you, I'm seeing elder folks now with dementia and Alzheimer's because I'm analyzing their stools and they have a lot of money. It's not helping them. They can't even remember that they have money. So they're, <laughs> and they're paranoid. So they're taking it out from the bank account and putting in them their houses, right? So then what happens is people can just go in and steal everything. So mm-hmm. everything you're holding on to, stop holding on to it, figure out how to get your mind better, how to get your gut better, because that's what matters. Yeah, absolutely. So you don't take we, it with you on the, in the tombstone. Guaranteed. No, no, absolutely not. Um, so you want to be here with it as long as you can. You want to be here with it. And I think a lot of people are like, well, I need to leave it for my kids. Don't worry about your kids. They have their own different path. Give yeah. your kids an education. Give your kids health. Give your kids a balanced brain. You know, don't get them into drugs. Don't make sure that they're not into drugs and alcohol and have a safe environment to play. That's what matters, right? Spend time with your kids. Give that quality to your kids so that they can grow up to be healthy and loving and actually will take care of you too. So that's, that's all part of what we put in, right? So we get what we put in. Yeah, totally. Talking about kids, because now we obviously looking at our aging population and there is a history, a health history that comes with that age, because now we're talking about years of whatever choices they made, whether they were good or bad for them. But we see a lot of children that are, well, they're facing neurological issues such as ADHD, uh, anxiety and depression in children is becoming huge, right? So I never realized until I came here. Sorry. Um, I, until I came here, I realized how many teenagers and even children, like literal children behind, you know, below 10 years old have these problems. And so what are you seeing in that environment? Obviously you're nodding. And so I think you're seeing a lot of it. Yes. yes, And why, why is this happening? 
It's a sore, uh, it's a painful topic for me, honestly, kids. It's mm. really painful because um, we did this to their kids. We did this, you know, the paranoia, the fear. We we made the, we kept them in houses. We told them mom and dad, you shouldn't see mom and dad. You're a vector, you're a disease, you know? So, and then also we're stressing kids. You've got to get that straight A. You've got to get into that college. You've got to get all that, right? You know, you've got these kids that have beautiful minds. They're artists, right? They don't want to go the science route. They don't want to go the the accounting route, right? You develop that. And by the way, me, myself as a mom, you know, I've realized, you know, what I, uh, you know, what I was doing to my own kids, right? Because you become a tough mom and then you don't realize that can affect their health as well, right? Their mental status, so you have to re kind of regroup and say, you know, like, especially raising my kids. Could you imagine I'm a lioness already and I'm a bulldozer, <laughs> you know, 10 wheels at the same time. My kids are the same. So, you know, you know, they're trying to show mom that they can lead the world. Right. So, you know, I've realized, you know, you got to just let them grow and let them be happy and have that balance. Right. Protecting them to a level, you know, so. When COVID hit, I saw that with the kids. I didn't, you know, at the beginning, I got a cat for my daughter because I said, she needs to, I can't just keep her quarantined in the house. And I was trying to figure it out, right? I didn't even know. Well, I kind of had a hint or hypothesis about bacteria back then. But I was also like everybody else. I was, you know, nervous, protecting my child, protecting my parents. And then as I treated, you know, my first patient with a heart failure and heart disease and he survived, and then, you know, a couple hundred patients later, I'm like, wait a minute, this is, this is wrong. You know, we should be treating early. And then when I got censored, that's when I started saying, wait, we were wrong. This is wrong. This is not the way. And then also when the fear, when you look at the data now, especially this data from Stanford, that shows that zero to 51 year olds, the rate of fatality was 0.00034, right? And you go, why did we stop life for these kids for such a rate, right? For such a rate. So what did we do? We seek, we believed that the kids were the vector. We shut them down. We kept them at home. Of course, that's going to create anxiety. They're not outside. They're not outdoors, right? You look at the studies of, you look at the studies of, um, of kids in kindergarten that stay in a classroom versus kids that play in the in the grass and in the garden out, outdoors, you will see those kids that are outdoors have less ear infections than kids that are, you know, in the classroom. What do you learn from that? You learn that you need to be in the environment. You need to get microbes from out there, right? You cannot grow a rose in a glass bottle. The rose needs the dirt. It needs the sun. It needs air. It needs microbes, right, mm -hmm. to flourish. So to the idea to put a tree and expect it to grow fruits in a glass bottle that's secure and sterile, no, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So what did we do? We kept our kids indoors. We kept mom and dad indoors, you know, and we basically, you know, started the process of immunizing, sterilizing our guts so that when we started going outside, you got infected, 
you got RSV, you got influenza, you got COVID, right? And the vaccine didn't help that, right? The vaccines didn't help these kids from getting COVID. So, so what did we do? We, we were wrong. And so the anxiety, the mental health, all that is because we as older folks in the science, in the government, in the FDA, did not protect the kids enough. And we, and the kids are our future, right? They're the future doctors. They're the future nurses that are going to change the government employees' diapers at some point in a hospital, right? <laughs> yeah. So you've got to be conscientious of we've got to protect the kids. And especially, you know, from the data that I'm showing right now, the microbiome of kids is super strong in bifidobacteria. So you need to protect these kids' microbiome, especially if the future is fecal transplant. They may be your donors, right? Yeah. So, so this is this is kind of the trend. I think we've stopped. We need to start protecting the kids. We need to start understanding what are we doing when we give one, two, and again, I'm not anti-vaxxer. I've put vaccines to market. This new vaccine to me is not a vaccine. It's a new technology of messenger RNA that's never been used. So, you know, what have we done, right? And when you talk about ASD and when you talk about ADHD, you know, these are the diseases we're seeing that are creeping up. In mm -hmm. 1980, one in 2,000 kids was autistic. Now it's one in 30. We cannot put blinders on that anymore. Yeah. We've got to understand what we're doing because if if we're right and there's a trend and then it's going to be one-on-one -on -one in about 20 years. One kid out of one will be autistic. Yeah. So we've got to look at the trends. And the fact, the thing is people are saying, well, we're better equipped at understanding autism, right? And we have different spectrums and we didn't know back in 1980. No, don't tell me that because you and I went, you know, well, you're younger than I am, but I went to school in the 1980s. You could tell a kid that's autistic in a classroom, Okay. The kid, you could tell a kid that doesn't speak, right? There's a problem. And I'm not even talking about the spectrum right now. I'm talking about the severe kids that are banging their heads on the wall, breaking their teeth, screaming and, and nonverbal. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the nonverbal. In 1980, in my classroom, there was no one that was nonverbal. No one, right? In, in 2023, or at least, you know, as of five years ago, you know, in my kids' classroom, they were kids with special needs. Now there are schools with special needs. There are yeah. centers with special needs. Right across my research center is a center with special needs. And they, they're super busy, line up every day. So obviously that didn't happen, right? There is a problem. We need to, to see what we're doing because the future is going to be really bad. And it's not only, you know, autism. It's Alzheimer's. It's Parkinson's. It's cancer. It's MS, it's ALS, you name it. All these neurological problems are climbing up, you know, cancer is going up, you know, so we got to figure out what are we doing, um, you know, to the microbiome of humanity, but also the microbiome of the planet that's yeah. causing all that. We can't just think like, I'm in this planet by myself and I just got to focus on me. You got to focus of all around you, so. I feel like we are trying to kill everything instead of healing everything with our actions 
I, I think it's all about, yes, and that's the mistake we've been doing in microbiology for years is we thought, well, it's all about kill, kill, kill. Kill mm. the bug. Kill the bug. But the problem is while you kill that one bug of strep pneumonia because you've got pneumonia, which is right, you need to understand you've also killed a bunch of good bugs that are needed for absorption of vitamin B, that are needed for absorption of of of, uh, of dairy, that are possibly needed for metabolism that keeps you skinny or fat, right? So there's there's a there's a repercussion. It's a domino effect. You drop the first one and then everything drops later. And then you wake up one day and you go, wow, nobody has cancer in my family and I got cancer. What happened? Well, go back. Go back to what happened in the beginning, you know? So that's the art of medicine. That's the art of detective work that can go back and say, you know, let me be humble to say, we made a mistake. We were killing when we should have been killing and enhancing. And that's why new technology like genetic sequencing of the gut is important because it helps us look back and say, wait a minute, C. diff, patients with C. diff have a Shannon index of diversity of 2.2. What did we do? We killed the microbiome. They should be like, you know, six, seven, right? We've killed the microbiome. We give a new microbiome with a diversity of six, seven, and bam, we're refloralizing the gut and the patient's healed, right? Mm. So that's how we could go back. So what did we do? We killed the bug of C. diff with vancomycin and everything. And then we replanted a new microbiome because at that point, when the dominoes are all fallen, it's time to start the game over again, right? Yeah. And put your dominoes back in place. So yeah. that's my opinion. So I have a question because obviously um, this sounds like um, it's very good science, like repopulating our gut when it's needed. But at the same time, as you said, there is not much support from insurance or government. And you are lucky to have a demographic that can afford it if they wish yes. to do it. But what about the, the general person that has, you know, a normal salary and the, it has normal insurance? What's their option when it comes to that? It, unfortunately, there is no option because it's all in the it's all in research. So mm -hmm. they, you know, spread the word, you know, educate others. Because with education, then the public starts making changes. Then the public demands changes in the spending of the FDA money, in the spending of the NIH money. You know, lobbyists are, are paid by pharmaceutical companies to push products because they make money, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, eventually, hopefully, you know, we will have something, you know, that's tangible as a consumer that will continue to pay for the research. But, you know, right now, my, my aim is really, you know, we're so far from that, in my opinion. You know, my aim is to, but you never know. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm on God's timing. So I don't know. People tell me, why aren't you doing this? Why? God's timing. I don't know. When it comes out, I do it. You know, I just jump. So, yes, I mean, all of this path for me was really God's, God's path, right? I, yeah. I asked God, where do we go after we die? at five years old. And I thought I went into medicine to understand, you know, life after death. And then lo and behold, um, you know, I realized the microbiome takes over the body and decomposes you back to the earth. And those microbes are still going under the planet doing their thing. Right. And then they regrow, you know, as a plant as a whatever. So 
So life is continuous, in my opinion. You know, it's a circle of life, you know. So you need the sun, you need the air, you need the oxygen, you need um, you need the vitamin D from the sun. So everything we have that we need is really in the planet. You need what? Are, what does a human being need? Sun, vitamin D from vitamin D from sun. Um, you know, water, which is in the planet, and fruits and vegetables that is from the planet, right? Yeah. The rest is all man-made. And good air. Good air. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So air, oxygen, yeah. So I think, but all that happens because of that, in my opinion, that microbiome, uh, you know, in action, right? As I'm speaking to you, there's tons of microbes around me. Yeah. You know, did did you watch? Exactly. Did you watch Fantastic Fungi? No, no, I didn't. No, I, I think you'll find it fascinating because it really relates to your question and your answer um, of where we go after because uh, it talks about the... Um, the, you know, the, just the network of fungi that is in the earth since the beginning of time, how it connects to yes, everything and, yes. and replicate, like replicates continuously. So it's fascinating how, and we're like, they're very close to us, you know, like uh, fungi and us are very, very close to each other. So um, it's fascinating to see that because again. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's, you know, if you look at C. diff, a bacteria mm. that we've tried to kill for like, I've tried to kill it for like, 20, 30 years with clinical trials, you know, C. diff is 10 million years old. Yeah. Can you imagine? So yeah. it's been here during, you know, prehistorical times. So these microbes have been here. We've just demolished them. We need to bring them back. When you look at Africa and you look at America, the microbiome of the two countries is completely so different. That's why, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I'm very passionate about is the uh, idea of globalization, you know, globalization causes globesity, which causes the destruction of the microbiome. You know, mm -hmm. people that are, live in Peru and have tomatoes in Peru at a certain time should eat them because that's their environment. That's their tomatoes, right? Transplanting them to America, it's a different soil, different microbes. Is that compatible with the American soil, right? Or Japan or China? Every region has their own microbiome that needs to be preserved, in my opinion. Yeah. So. They did, um, in, in Africa, talking about Africa, they did a, um, a study on the Hazza, right? The, mm -hmm. and, and they were looking at their microbiome as how rich it was. But then as more and more of the youth that, that is uh, born into that um, a tribe, leaves the tribe, the microbiome also starts changing and yes. not for the better. Yeah. So, and we've seen that with the Amazon jungle too. Yeah. You, know, you take a person that lives in the forest of the, and lives in the Amazon and basically, you know, is living with the dirt in the earth with the tents. And then they come to like New York city and they take once one bath with soap and their whole microbiome of the skin disappears, you know? Yeah. So, is that the reason that the Amazon jungle is protected from skin cancer when they're outdoors all the time uh, so. versus, you know, our population that is constantly having skin cancer on the rise, right? And so, this, is, this is a conversation you probably have with your sister, right? All the time. <laughs> yes. My sister Carol and I have a debate. So, but she's, she's coming my way with the microbiome. So she did a whole big press release. She did not a press release, but she did a whole article um, in some magazine about the microbiome and the importance of the gut. Oh, so, brilliant. 
Yeah, but there's, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like the skin microbiome. And listen, I'm trying to get my husband. I'm like, I've been fishing with my husband to wheel him in with the heart because mm. I believe the heart is also, you know, heart disease. What have we seen from COVID? Coagulopathies, mm. right? Maybe heart disease is a bacteria or a virus. We need to look at that, right? I mean, so, I spoke to Dr. Joel Kahn, who is also a cardiologist, and we were talking about the relationship between the microbiome in our mouth and cardiovascular yes. disease. So that correlation is well, well, is well established. So yes. I would not be surprised that any other microbiome in our body connects to the heart. Because again, we're talking about tissues that although they have cells, they still have to, they still have to deal with bacteria. So it makes total sense Everything- to me. Everything you do. So I learned a good trick when I was treating COVID. Mm. Some people were so sick, they couldn't take any pills, right? So we mm. crushed um, we crushed ivermectin and we put it in oil and we put it on their bellies. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden their oxygen improved. What did I do? I took a fermented product of a bacteria. I put it topical to get absorbed the in the blood vessels And then it goes eventually to the colon because the blood vessels go to the bowels. So in essence, I use that fermentation on my skin to travel the blood vessel to go to the colon and nourish those microbes. And by the way, that data is coming on ivermectin, you know, um, and the microbiome. So you'll see. Oh, we have to, we'll put that on on the show notes if it comes out with the show will go out in it may should, in, sorry in march so it should not, yeah, yeah so it'll be way before so you could put it in there brilliant uh because we did also put the other research the last time and that was brilliant um i, I you know i, I i'm fascinated well, i can tell it on the show because it's probably it's going to be published yeah. But, yeah but ivermectin increases your bifidobacteria yeah within yeah, 24 surprised. hours we tested within 24 hours and Amazing. that was the hypothesis that i put in that basically got me uh, censored from Twitter for like two hours. I was in prison of Twitter. And of course I called a couple of my, you know, Malibu patients who put money into Twitter and then I was reinstated. So, but basically, so I am fortunate in that path that I have a lot of people that support me, you know, in Malibu that I can kind of navigate this whole system because I'm shaking the beehive. And I'm also, you know, I'm shaking the beehive of pharma in a way, but I'm also you know, having the FDA working with me. So, you know, I try to, and I don't want to shake the beehive too hard. You know, I just want them to come my way to see the microbiome, right? Because I think there's still a need for pharmaceutical companies. We can make their products better. Yeah. Uh, But they need to understand the microbiome and the repercussion of their drugs on the microbiome to work with the patient. Think about chemo drugs, for example, okay? Chemo drugs could possibly have a benefit, but we've not seen too many cancers that are cured with chemo drugs, right? And in fact, what are we doing? We're killing the gut with chemo drugs. What if we took that chemo drug and we added a microbiome product on top of that? But first we need to see what is the microbiome that you're dealing with in that cancer population. That data is coming out on um, aggressive cancer and the microbiome. So that's coming out. Wow. I just so, so I'm all over. I have a lot of different papers that are coming out, you know, um, cancer, Lyme disease. So the missing link really is paying attention to the microbiome and Lyme disease. I'm speaking at the ILADS 
conference and we actually joined up ILADS with Malibu Microbiome Meeting March 18th. So hopefully we'll have uh, a lot of people coming in to educate doctors, to educate them, because this is a new technology. This is a new world. And by the time it gets to the medical schools, you know, somebody's got to fund it. And, you know, it starts with the new technology. It starts with the validated, verified lab. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like hemoglobin, right? We had, when we had a CBC that was validated, verified, reproducible, we could say your hemoglobin is six, you need blood transfusion, right? But back then, in the olden days, when we didn't have a CBC, we couldn't say, you know, your hemoglobin is, we knew you were bleeding, but we didn't know how to give you blood. We didn't know what blood was clean. You know, everything is a discovery, you know, like you wouldn't have discovered anemia if you didn't have the CBC was validated. And then you wouldn't have discovered, you know, that blood was clean, you know, the the blood that you transfuse, you wouldn't have discovered hepatitis C, you wouldn't have discovered HIV. You know, all these things play a role, you know, to add one more piece to the puzzle of life on earth. Absolutely. So, Dr. Aizen, obviously we're talking about high-level um, high biotech when we talk about what you do, which is amazing. And the research is important and the trials are essential. But for the person that is out there right now, so if they are wondering what they can do to improve their microbiome, and especially when it comes to their brain health, because um, it's clear that our brains are getting affected, uh, whether it's now from circumstantial um, you know, pressure, obviously our social media, being on technology all the time, not being reading, not being stimulated, I don't know, or overstimulated sometimes. Um, our, our nutrition is obviously impacting us, everything, the air we breathe. What can they do to make sure that everything they do is in a is affecting them positively when they are fighting a wave of negativity? Yeah. So the first thing is read the book. Let's talk shit. Yeah. Because that has a chapter money in the bank that talks about foods um, and the fermentation of foods and you know different recipes in there that can help. Uh, we're planning on writing a sequel to that, but that's the introduction, right? It, get to know on a you know, we wrote it very simplistically because I find so many of these books are so hard, right? So read the book. You know, it's probably not the best, you know, book out there as far as like literature, et cetera, but it's definitely a book that's going to help you understand the microbiome and understand gut health and understand, you know, how diseases could possibly, it's got a bunch of quotes from different publications. And again, we wrote it very simplistically and with a little bit of a sense of humor. Shelley Ellsworth is the comment, the, the comedian in that. She literally wrote, you know, she helped Dr. Hazen get her shit together. So that's <laughs> that, that was the purpose of the book. You know, and then we had Dr. Barodi that basically overlooked the whole project to kind of say, yes, this is right, this is wrong. And then, you know, so when I, I, I sent it to my friends, Neil Stolman, Colleen, and they're like, they all gave it five stars. So that's a good book, especially if my colleagues are supporting it and believing it, it's a good book and they're referring it to their patients, okay? The second thing that I would say is turn off the news if it's upsetting you. Turn off things that are meant to instigate you, that are triggering you, because it starts with healthy mind, healthy healthy gut. And unfortunately, they go in parallel, right? If Mm -hmm. your mind is upset about something, it's going to generate on your gut. 
and then vice versa, you know? So that's the first thing. Put yourself in a mindset, start, turn off the news. You know, if some politician is annoying you and you can't stand them, turn them off. Don't listen to them. Don't give them a stage in your, don't give them space in your mind. Mm-hmm. That's the number one, because so many of my patients and I live in Malibu. So a lot of people are, you know, you know, they're not necessarily, they were the whole Trump thing, Trump with hydroxy and they, you know, they were just, it was getting them so upset. Stop that. Turn it off. Stop listening. Right. You don't need to give it stage. So that's number one. Number two, decrease the stress, right? Decrease. So if you're overdoing, you got to re, re look at yourself and say, maybe I need to balance myself, balance the hard work. So I'm very good at balancing hard work with work hard, play hard. Right. So, mm-hmm. You know, I'll always take about a week, you know, that I'm not so busy. Like I'm always working, but there's one week that I basically during the month where I say, okay, you know, this is my week where I'm going to force myself to do gardening, where I'm going to force myself to hike, where I'm going to force myself to like, you know, spend time with my loved ones. Right. And I say force because, you know, we get into this train of, you know, this motion that we don't stop. You got to stop and you got to, and and I'm very thankful because I have a husband that's like, likes to have family time where he doesn't want me on my cell phone. So he'll take me to the most, you know, obscure places where there's no Wi-Fi on purpose. <laughs> Cause, and then that's my, that's my downtime to say, wow, I, I'm not on my cell phone 24 seven. Cause I tend to be on my cell phone 24 seven. It was important during the pandemic for me to be on my cell phone 24 seven. I was treating patients. You were saving lives. Yeah. Yeah. I was saving lives. I was writing the data. I was on Twitter talking about the data. I was trying to spread the word as much as possible. Cause at the end of the day, it's where do I put my money? Do I put my money on marketing or do I put my money on research? Yeah. Putting my money on research. I want to discover. Yeah. I want to discover for me first. And then the rest will come, right? Then once mm-hmm. I write the data, others will follow. But I want to discover for me first, and I'm the guinea pig first, because I'm the person that basically, I would never give someone something that could harm them. So I want to make sure that it didn't harm me first, right? And I learned a lot during the pandemic of what hurts and what didn't. And and believe me, I took a beat, a beat up at some point because I killed my bifido to see what was raising my bifido, right? And that took me about seven months to reboost. So it was not easy to reboost. So when people say, well, I took this probiotic and it didn't work. Well, you don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's working, but it, you're only at 0.1% bifido instead yeah. of 1%, right? So everything is slow. You know, the pills you take in the mouth don't take that much time. You know, you, you're lucky if you get from a probiotic one colony of microbes in your colon where it needs to be active, right? Yeah. And then you're lucky if that probiotic actually implants in your colon. Yeah. So it's got to be consistency of, you know, nutraceuticals, of probiotics that basically keeps you going, but the right probiotic, the right nutraceuticals, right? Because like I said before, if you take a nutraceutical with, you know, um, asbestos in there or, or arsenic, right? Not asbestos, but arsenic or you take, or it has some other products on the capsule that is damaging your microbiome, you know, that, and that data is coming. Um, if you take a product from, um, you know, so if you take a probiotic that has dead bacteria or no bacteria, it's not going to really help you. 
So mm-hmm. my my role in the future is going to be to try to empower the public, right? To get them with, you know, um, with education through the data to kind of learn. So the first thing is, if you feel good and you're and you've survived COVID, you're doing great. Keep doing what you're doing because your microbiome is resilient. Even if somebody tells you stop eating that because you know I was with a girlfriend who has a who has not had COVID for the three years and she's not vaccinated. And basically, I was sitting at a table and she ate one little donut and then one little churros. And some you know um, guy comes in like he's a coach. And he looks at the table and he's like, well, this is horrible for your microbiome. And I, and I looked at him and I'm like, did you have COVID during the pandemic? And he had it twice. I said, I probably would be listening to this girl because she hasn't had COVID yet. Right. So please don't criticize her about her nutrition. Right. Because what's good for one person is not necessarily good for another person. And by the way, I'm not conducting, I'm not, you know, telling anybody to start eating donuts. But what I'm saying is moderation, right? So if you're healthy, you've not gotten COVID, you've not been vaxxed, you've not taken vitamin, I mean, you've taken vitamins, but you've not taken ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, then keep doing what you're doing. You're in balance, you're good. I have so many patients that are like that and that are calling me. They're like, should I be taking? I'm like, no, stay the path. You're doing good, Mm -hmm. right? Because you don't want to change your microbiome that you've gotten, your genetics, your microbiome that you've gotten from. So that's that's uh, that's another comment. The other thing is nutrition is important. Where is your food coming from? I'm a big pusher of small mom and pop shops because small mom and pop shop, they verify the quality. There's a supervision, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a small mom and pop slob. You could bet that I'm verifying everything. I'm like, you know, mama bear on my employees. I drive them crazy because I try to overlook everything Quality in the lab, not necessarily paperwork, right? Because mm-hmm. paperwork is like my least favorite thing. So small, you know, mom and pops stores and small mom and pops farms, you know, that are practicing good farming, you know, that have diversity in their land, that it's not, you know, contaminated. It's got good farming practices. There's so many good farms out there that are just, you know, and I've gotten to learn them because I need to tell my patients. So, and I think there's a lot of resources. Uh, Joel Salatin will tell you like who are the farms that are that are basically following his trend. Um, mm. so, so farming, um, exercising, you know, we all hate doing it, but it's a must, right? And you put into your body, you get from your body what you put in, right? At a certain age, especially when you hit 50, you don't have as many hormones as you used to have as a child. So you're going to need to work harder at building that protein. You're going to need to consume more proteins. Certain vices, eliminate vices, right? So if you're drinking a bottle of vodka every night, well, get rid of that, right? Because that's not very good for your microbiome, right? A glass of wine is good. A bottle is not, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Unless you want to stay sterilizing your gut, but then you're going to keep pressure on the liver. And then eventually you're going to wake me up at two o'clock in the morning, vomiting blood. And I have to like cauterize your varices. So let's just stop that behavior right now and start with, you know, moderation. Same thing with coffee. You know, I hear people they're drinking. We've become a coffee, a caffeinated society. Mm. You know, there's a coffee place at every single corner, coffee Mm. beans, Starbucks, you name it. They're all over. 
you know, one cup of coffee in the morning is great. If you're drinking coffee at two o'clock, you can bet you're not going to sleep that night. Then mm. don't come to me to ask me about why you're not sleeping, right? Or why you're anxious. Anxiety, we're going to come to discover, is actually linked with consumption of coffee, mm. overconsumption of coffee. So cut down the coffee. You know, if you look at the studies of reflux, you know, caffeine weakens the valve at the G junction and therefore acid comes back up. So caffeine is not necessarily the best thing. Yes, one cup to kind of get you started because you're already getting there. But, you know, long-term caffeine abuse is not good. Yeah, totally. And then, you know, moderation in foods, right? So if you're healthy and you're vegan, great, keep at it. If you're healthy and you're vegetarian, keep at it. If you're healthy and meat eater and carnivore, keep at it, right? That's <laughs> I wanted to ask body. you. I wanted to ask you about this carnivore thing, though, because – that that I just can't get on board with. Um, well, I think that, you know if you can get uh, Carnivore MD on this. Oh Jesus! Can, uh, I, I will only get him here if I get uh, Simon Hill at the same time because yes, yes, yeah, that's a chat. Yeah, and by the way, thing. I also want to put Carnivore MD with my sister Carol because he's like you know you know anti sunscreen and she's pro sunscreen. So, but this. <laughs> beauty of medicine right that there's one person on this side one person on this side i tend to stay middle ground i'm like well maybe for some people maybe for some people right so same thing with everything right if you've demolished your microbiome you're probably going to be the person that's going to need something to protect you from a virus right because like a shot right because you've demolished it there's no turning back we're not at the level of fecal transplant yet so you're going to need the whatever is accepted in standardized medicine for protection, right? However, if your microbiome is resilient, healthy, and you've not needed a shot, and you're, you don't know about the consequences of that shot on your children, on the future, then it's reasonable for people to say, you know what? I don't want the mandates, right? So that's where mm-hmm. the middle ground comes in, right? It's not one or this. We don't force people, I don't force people to take medications, right? I tell them, look, this is what I believe. Here's the data. You do your own research. Come back to me, see if you want to do it, right? I'm not there like, you know, forcing them in a hospital because they didn't want to take my medication, right? Like I didn't force that guy to pay $30,000 to have surgery for his rectal cancer, right? Yeah. I did the best I could to convince him, I told him, I said, look, you're going to, we're going to be digging your grave in a year if you don't listen. I mean, I can't be any more blunt than that. Right. And he still didn't do it. So at some point we as physicians can tell you our advice. That doesn't mean it's the right advice all the time, because we know for the science that we know at this moment, but I think, um, you know, it's up to you the individual, it's your body, your choice. I always tell that to my patients. And I always also tell them what I do is research. So I'm in the realm of research. I may be wrong and I, you know, I may be full of it or I may not be, but let's talk about it. 
So yeah, you have to be able to, a lot of people don't know how to do research, neither do they know how to read the papers. And sadly, I'm sorry, I know that obviously Saladino doesn't know how to read papers. That's one reason why I need to get him on with um, Simon Hill if I ever do, because I, that, that would be a very, very fun conversation. Um, so, you know, I... You, you you can look at things from an angle only, but like, for example, when you look at the bifidum bacterium and you see the, the work of the microbiome, there is a relationship to other things. We cannot look at science by isolating one angle because the body is not just that. It's very much an interaction and, and the different pathways that happen into the body. It's a yes. very complex yes. system. So you see, yes. that's the difference. But a lot of people don't know how to read science or don't even but, want to but, but also, let me tell you, they mm. are different. They are within the human, you within mankind. Mm. There are different species of humans, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah, we, we have the people that are very zen. We have the artists. We have the high, strong, you know, venture capitalist. You know, it takes a certain personality, a certain microbiome to do all these jobs, right? True. So, I, and I always say this, the person that's that's Zen and that's a yoga instructor and running at a constant path of calm, peace, leave me alone, you cannot put them in an environment where it's high, strong venture capitalists, you know, selling stocks. They'll just, they'll develop disease most likely mm. because of the fact that you've gone from this stress level to this stress level, right? Mm. Now, and those are the people that usually you see, they've gone from this calm to all of a sudden something happens to their family, to their loved ones, and they're up here mm. and they can't handle it. Then they start getting diseases, Crohn's, etc. You know, and I've, I've seen kids over the years that they were very calm, yoga, peace. And then all of a sudden parents got divorced. And then that was the stress level up here. And then they came to see me with Crohn's and all sort of colitis. So... Mm. Something happened to that microbiome, possibly, I mean, obviously this is all research and hypothesis, that could have triggered that change, right? Mm. Now there's those people that are surviving up here, they need different nutrients than those people that are surviving down here. Mm. We have to realize that we're all different in our microbiome. That's number one. Mm. And because we're all different, look, if you were in my shoes doing everything that I'm doing, you would probably not survive because of the fact that I'm constantly on different levels. Like I can mm. tell you, my husband and I, he's more, you know, one thing. He can only handle one job and I can run multiple, right? Mm. And it's kind of like almost like a ADHD superpower, right? <laughs> Where you're running multiple. But for that, there's a certain feeding that I need to kind of run that, Right. So that's why we can't be compared on our nutrition. Also, my microbiome comes from a different region, right? I was born in Morocco, right? And my parents fed me like, you know, brain and spleen and mammary glands. I mean, you name it, <laughs> that I thought was disgusting as a kid. But turns out, hey, you know what? Maybe that was good for my microbiome at the time because that's what my generations and my family ate, right? Now, if I give that diet to a person from Mexico or India, It'll kill them, right? Because it's different microbiome. So we have to be very sensitive to a person like, you know, uh, carnivore MD, who basically is functioning at a different level of than a person like Simon, who is functioning at a different level. 
Both of them cannot possibly require the same nutrition. And it's the same thing in the animal kingdom, by the way. You look at the elephant who eats grass and dirt and you look at their dung, it's enormous amount of fiber in there, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And there's actually, there's ticks in the dung of the elephant, okay? Now you look at the dung and I was in a, in, South, in uh, Zimbabwe in a safari collecting poop of these animals. So I can tell you I've, you know, front line, you look at the, um, you look at the lion, the, it's all blood. It's all meat because mm. they're eating other animals, mm. right? Yeah. So here's, you know, here's a, within the animal kingdom, some are vegan and some are carnivores. Mm. They function differently, right? The lion is the one that's keeping the peace in the forest and basically attacking and he's the king of the forest, right? The elephant basically doing his thing. He's, he's transporting microbes from one area to another. With the dung, he transports seeds, right? You ever wonder why in Zimbabwe you have one tree that's like just isolated mm -hmm. out of nowhere and you go, how did that tree get planted there, right? Well, the, the <laughs> elephant was moving around and planted that seed, you know? When mm -hmm. you go in on top of a mountain that's so high and you you barely breathe up there and you see vegetation and plants you know how did that happen on a rock right because birds pooped on that rock and left their seeds in there right mm -hmm. so we uh, so in the animal kingdom there's different microbes for different animals and different nutrition for different animals same thing in the human kingdom just because we are you know, all alike in, you know, the fact that we're humans, bones, mammals, we still have differences in who we are that allows us to function. We cannot all be artists. We cannot all be accountants. We cannot all be doctors. There's a certain temper, you know, there's a certain mean temperament, you know, temperament that basically creates that. So mm. anyway, <laughs> so I think that's also microbiome derived. Right, because I, I think you're right. Yeah, okay. and I and I'm seeing that. I'm the, so I'm doing the clinical trial. I'm doing the clinical trial looking at vegan versus vegetarian versus carnivores. Mm. So that data is going to be coming. It's very fat. It's fascinating. I want to see yeah. that. Yeah, but it's fascinating because again, both of them are not right or wrong. There's a middle point, and the middle point is the microbiome is going to tell the story. Exactly. And so you see, you're analyzing something though to go by. And so the problem I have is that a lot of people that, and I mean, this is becoming now personal and it's not I, about Saladino, but the problem I have with it, the way that he talks about his diet to people is that there is no differentiation there. And there are a lot of people that are following the diet that are getting sick. And data is showing a lot of cardiovascular disease in the making, if not already there. I mean, we are seeing this. And so that's a problem. And, you know, and those are the people that won't even have the financial but there's, means but there's to a, come. Yeah, but I think social media has a good ability to draw you to people that are like-minded, right? Mm. So I think, I think people that are like-minded, that are helped by him, will continue to follow him because there's mm -hmm. something that helps them, right? Vice versa, the person that's vegan has been helped by vegan. And I have a lot of my patients in Malibu that are amazing health that are vegan, right? 
And that helped them. So they're going to continue to follow Simon because they are helped by the vegan movement, right? And so I think somewhere along the line, the social media is there. Unfortunately, there's too much influence, right? But I agree. I think both of them need to say, look, if it helps you, great, continue doing it. If it doesn't, then, you know, switch to another path, right? Because it's not everybody should be doing this and everybody should be doing no, that. No, and to be fair, Simon doesn't do that, actually. Simon just really presents information from studies, which is nice about him because he doesn't yeah. push anything, which is not what Paul does. So, you know, that's the difference. But as you say, people have to feel well and they need to, you know, know yes. how they're feeling. That's very, very important. I think they um, need to feel... They need to listen to their gut more. And they need <laughs> to feel gut. like this is, you know, pay attention, right? When mm-hmm. I have these kids with autism, so when mm-hmm. I do fecal, when I did um, fecal transplant on my kid with autism, I basically told the kid, the parents, I said, pay attention to every little thing, right? Mm-hmm. You're not going to expect the kid to speak overnight, okay? Mm-hmm. But pay attention to the small changes that you see. So the first changes that we saw was the kid started sleeping through mm. the night. That's huge. The kid wasn't sleeping for like 19 years, right? Yeah, yeah. So Or 17 years. So this was huge. So you have to pay attention to your body mm-hmm. and you have to pay attention that if something affects you. So I, one of my um, patients is actually, uh, she's a, a hypnotherapist, okay? Mm. And recently she was having some gas problem. And I, you know, gas, if your microbiome is out of balance, you don't really tolerate salads very well. No. Like green yeah. vegetables are full of microbes. So if you don't have those microbes to digest them, you're not going to tolerate them, right? So yeah. you're going to be gassy. So I told her, I said, look, stop the salad, stop the greens for a bit. Not that they're bad for you, but it's just that right now you have a microbiome that's out of balance. Let's yeah. stop what's you know, what we're giving you, it's like people that have lactose intolerance. Well, it doesn't matter that I, they don't have those microbes to, to, to break down the dairy. Right. Yeah. So same thing with this one. So she stopped lettuce and, um, and then she wasn't convinced that that was the problem. Right. And then she restarted lettuce and she started noticing because it was subtle at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. But then she noticed when she restarted lettuce, from the subtle change to the, oh my God, you know, my, my, oh my God, I'm really in pain with a heating pad yeah. from eating a salad. That's my problem, right? Yeah. So and that's a great I way with it. an elimination diet, right? To check. Yeah. And that's it. That's amazing. That's important. Yeah. And keeping a diary. So you ask like, how does the common person fix themselves? Right. Yeah. Keep a diary, you know? When my kid was uh, eight, she used to have like diarrhea, a crampy pain, right? And I would basically keep a diary of everything she ate. It turns out popcorn was the worst food for her and corn. I eliminated the corn, perfectly normal. So, you know, certain things, keep a diary and be be a detective with your own body, right? Get to write the time you ate at eight o'clock, you had a corn, a a corn tortilla, and then at two o'clock, you got gassy. Well, maybe the corn tortilla. Repeat the experiment. Keep repeating. And then circle what you see. And then you become the detective for your own body of what you can eat and what you shouldn't eat. Yeah. And then if you shouldn't eat some stuff and you really want to eat it, 
then you know there's probably a gut dysbiosis that's going to need to be addressed in order yeah. to get you to eat. Because yeah. I say this because when I had patients with with C. diff and celiac sprue and they couldn't eat bread before the celiac sprue, and we and after the fecal transplant, we gave them a person that was healthy, no celiac sprue. They were able to eat bread. Oh wow, that's amazing! So the change of the microbiome altered possibly the disease. Yeah, but until we get the whole world to pay attention to this and allow us to do this technology, to see, to fine tune, to invest, to donate to the research, because yeah. this is enormous research, right? I'm looking at celiac, Parkinson's, autism. Yeah. We have 57 clinical trials going yeah. where we're analyzing the races, the ages, the microbiome of the carnivore, the vegan, the person that has animals versus the person that doesn't have animal. That's mm-hmm. not a computer that's going to do that. It's Sabine Hazen calling the patients and dragging the history from all those patients mm-hmm. and then com- coming together with a group that's homogenous and saying, okay, well, you know what? The Africans that are carnivores, not on medications, da da da, look like this. Mm-hmm. The Americans that are uh, American Italian that are 20 to 30 years old look like that, right? So that's the future. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's very targeted. Uh, because, like, very targeted it's precision medicine. Yes, precision medicine, precision exactly. Medicine. Wow. Well, that was amazing. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Hazen. So As always, <laughs> you are Thank amazing. You. Thank you for having me. Anytime, and I hope we can do this again. And pay attention to the uh, papers on Progenobiome and support us. Thank you. Definitely. Uh, We'll put them in the show notes. And as soon as you send them to me, I'll also put them on on social media. Perfect. (laughs) Thank Thank you. Thank you so much, Otan. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you, Dr. Aizen, and thank you everyone for staying on for this episode. I really hope you enjoyed the difference of opinions and the discussion and the debate and the uh, wonderful information shared throughout the episode. If you want to learn more about Dr. Aizen's research and work, please go into the show notes. I also linked the studies that have been just published about um, her recent research into brain health. So it's key to understand that this is an ongoing field, that we don't know everything, the science evolves, and asking questions and learning more is very, very important. So hopefully you uh, will share this episode with other people that are interested in the topic, but also please don't forget to review and also like so that we can keep on growing, and I will see you next week. Bye!